Before I start, I want to encourage you to press pause and get your Bibles. It's always a good idea to follow along in your Bibles, but I think especially so uh, with this passage. And it's a good habit to get into. And when we return to meeting physically, I'd like us to make a point of bringing our Bibles to church each week. Uh, We use the NIV, the New International Version uh, translation. So if you haven't got a copy of that, it will be a great thing to invest in. So press pause, get your Bibles and maybe a pencil, and then we'll uh, look at Psalm 147. You know, there's a huge amount of anxiety around at the moment. It's not hard to see why uh, people are are anxious and depressed about the state of the world. Uh, Humanity has made huge progress technologically and in terms of our understanding, but we don't seem to have made any real progress in the area of morality. Take violence, for example. The First World War started about 100 years ago and between 15 and 22 million people died. The Second World War started uh, about 80 years ago. 75 million people died, including 40 million civilians. In terms of world history, that's recent. And you might say, well, we're moving away from that period of history. The world is nowhere near as violent as it used to be. But is that really true? Over the next six years, which was the duration of World War II, at current levels, 336 million babies will be aborted, many of them at a late stage of pregnancy. 336 million That is an unprecedented level of violence. And I'm just using that as an example. Our capacity to do violence and destroy life is just one indication of our moral status. The truth is the human race is no less violent, selfish, greedy or prideful than at any other stage of human history. The benefits of Uh, increased technology are tremendous and I'm not denying those benefits but in the hands of immoral human beings new technologies uh, have also meant that we have a greater capacity to damage each other and the environment. Uh, We're now starting to hear about climate anxiety particularly in the younger generation anxiety about the damage that we're doing to the planet. Uh, Scientists have been warning us for ages about uh, global warming. Uh, The world's forests are being destroyed at an alarming rate, uh, around 18 million hectares per year. To put that in perspective, Tasmania is 6.8 million hectares. That 18 million hectares of forests are being destroyed every year. Our seas are full of plastic and the earth is being stripped of minerals to satisfy our desire for stuff, much of which we don't need. I can understand why some people are experiencing climate anxiety. Uh, Global pandemics are now causing people to worry. In 1918, Spanish flu caused the death of 50 million people worldwide. We're now waking up to the fact that global pandemics are increasingly likely in the future. We're in the middle of one now and it seems to be linked to the food we eat and the way we produce it. It seems that there's an awful lot to be 
anxious about. And that's just on a global scale, let alone what's going on in our own individual lives. So what hope is there? Where will it all end? Is humanity going to wipe itself out? Will greed, folly, ambition and the wanton destruction of the planet lead to humanity's downfall? What does the Christian faith have to say about all this? Well, Psalm 147 reminds us that God is our creator and our redeemer. It reminds us that God will heal and restore the earth and God will heal and restore his people. Before we get into that, uh, let's go back a few weeks when we saw that, generally speaking, the Psalms can be divided into three categories. Psalms of orientation, which point us to the way things should be. Psalms of disorientation, which point us to the way things often are. And Psalms of new orientation, which point us to the way things will be in the future. So we started four weeks ago with Psalms 1 and 2, which are Psalms of orientation. They set the scene for the whole collection, the whole book of Psalms. Uh, Then we moved to Psalm 14, which is also a Psalm of orientation, though perhaps a little harder to categorise. And we looked at the uh, folly of practical atheism. And then last week uh, we read Psalm 88, which is very much a Psalm of disorientation. It's a cry of total desperation from one who has absolutely no sense of God's presence. And today we're studying Psalm 147, a psalm of new orientation, a psalm that shows us how things will be and gives us hope for the future. And it's a psalm that draws our attention to God as our creator and our redeemer, the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth. In other words, it brings us full cycle back to the creation narrative at the beginning of Genesis. It brings us full cycle to the very beginning of the Torah, uh, the law. You remember that the first five books of the Bible are are the the Torah, which is the the Jewish law, upon which Psalm 1 tells us to meditate. And we're reminded of the whole sweep of scripture, the overarching narrative. In very simple terms, the Bible can be divided into three sections. Creation, creation gone wrong, which is where we are now, and creation put right, which is what we have to look forward to. And it is creation put right, this future hope to which Psalm 147 points Biblical faith is always forward-looking. So let's look first at the structure of this psalm. It's divided into three sections, and this is where it would be really helpful to track this in your Bibles. Uh, Get a pencil and mark down the sections. So the three sections are verses 1 to 6, 7 to 11, and 12 to 20. They almost look like three individual psalms. And each section begins with a summons or a call to worship. Verse verse 1, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. Uh, Verse 7, sing to the Lord with grateful praise, make music to our God on the harp. And verse 12, extol the Lord, Jerusalem, praise God, Zion. You can see how each section begins with praise. 
And each section ends with a comparison between God's people and everyone else. For example, uh, verse six. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Here's what God will do for his people. He sustains them. And here's what will happen to the wicked. They'll be cast to the ground. It's this comparison. And everything in between these two bookends of praise and comparison is about God's creative power and God's redemptive power. In other words, what he's done, continues to do and will do for creation. And what he's done, continues to do and will do for his people. And this forms the basis for the praise at the beginning of each section. God is in charge of the fate of creation. God is in charge of the fate of his people. And we know that ultimately it will go well for creation and for God's people. And that is uh, reason enough to praise the Lord with all our might. The overall message of this psalm is that God's creation and God's redeemed people will endure forever. Uh, This is very important for those who are anxious about the world or anxious about their own safety and security or uh, anxious and troubled about something that's going on in their life. God's creation and God's redeemed people will endure forever. So let's do a quick overview of each section. The first section, uh, verses one to six, it begins by telling us to praise the Lord. Verse one, as we've seen, uh, then it says uh, this in verse two, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praises. No, that's Psalm 146. Uh, verse two, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel from a Jewish perspective. This is all about the Jews who have been scattered all over the world coming back to Jerusalem, the holy city. It's about God's kingdom and God's people being made whole once more. As Christians, we understand this to mean God's people coming from all nations, not just Jews, but non-Jews, Gentiles as well. And God being with his people in a real physical way, as in Revelation 21. And you can read that Um, later on. But whether you take a Jewish perspective or a Christian's perspective, this is all about redemption. Those who are or, or were far off from God being brought close to God once more, brought back out of slavery. And we would want to say slavery to sin and death. Jesus has paid the price and brought us back. And and that's what redemption means, to buy back a slave's freedom. Then it talks about God healing the brokenhearted. And again, we find echoes of this in Revelation 21. I wonder, have you ever been brokenhearted? I know I have. You may have experienced relationship breakdown, grief, persistent, unrelenting hardship, abuse, or any number of sorrows. Perhaps you've already experienced a huge amount of healing or some healing, or maybe you're in the midst of the worst pain that you've ever experienced. Take heart. God will heal you in this life. Yes, but ultimately you will be completely healed. That's all part of being redeemed, set free from everything that is evil. 
So we see God's redeeming power, but then we see his creative power. Verse four, he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. It draws our attention to God's creative power, the the heavens, the universe, and it draws our attention to the fact that God cares for creation and sustains it. He cares what happens to it. Each star is named by God. But this reference to creation has a double meaning. Uh, remember God's promise to Abraham. God said to Abraham, look, at, look up at the, the stars and count them, if indeed you are able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So when the psalmist tells us that each star is named, it speaks to us not only of God's care for creation, but also of his care for each one of us. Then we have the uh, second section, verses 7 to 11. And again, it starts with praise and, and then it brings us back to the created order. Uh, one commentator suggested rephrasing phases 8 to 9 in the style of a nursery rhyme. This is a God that brings the clouds, that drops the rain, that enriches the earth, that produces the plants, that feed the birds and the beasts. Uh, In other words, kingdoms rise and fall, but the cycle of nature continues unabated. God sustains the cycle of rain and harvest in spite of man's folly. As Jesus said, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is powerful enough to create this world and loving enough to sustain it, no matter what human beings are getting up to. And then in verses 10 to 11, we have this contrast again. Uh, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. In other words, don't put your trust in your cavalry and your infantry. Don't put your trust in earthly power. For the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. It is not the powerful who will be redeemed, but those who put their hope in the Lord. Throughout scripture, God favours the poor, the destitute, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the marginalised and the powerless. And this offers such hope for those who are mistreated and downtrodden. Finally, the third section, verses 12 to 20, follows the same pattern. Praise in verse 12, redemption in verses 13 and 14, and that these verses offer the promise of peace and security by means of a strong city and a prosperous countryside. And then creation in verses 15 to 18. The Lord is in control of winter and summer. Uh, But crucially, winter will be followed by summer. If you've read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you'll remember that the whole of Narnia had been plunged into perpetual winter, which represented the evil times. But the appearance of the lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus in the book, precipitates the great thaw. Summer is at last on its way. God is sovereign. If we find ourselves in the midst of a harsh winter, we just have to hold out for the summer because it will come. Then we have verses 19 to 20, but I'm I'm going to come back to these because they raise a crucial question that I'm going to finish with. So we can see very clearly in this psalm, God's creative power, God's 
redemptive power and the contrast between the righteous and the ungodly. And all of this forms the basis for our praise. But one might ask, so what? What difference does this make to us? How do we live in the light of this? Well, our calling, our responsibility as Christians is to live our lives as closely as possible to the way we will live when creation and humanity have been healed and restored. We're to be heralds of this new creation. We're to announce it, to usher it in. We know that God will do this. And so we worship, we praise, we sing, we express our gratitude and we extol the Lord our God. All the things that the psalm uh, tells us that we should do, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week in our daily lives. We live a life of praise. And you might say, well, what does a life of praise look like? A life of praise is a life that is orientated towards God, a life that is orientated towards Christ. It's a humble life, a disciplined life, a joyful, hope-filled life and an obedient life. You can't praise God and turn away from God at the same time, just as you can't say, I love my wife or my husband and pour out your praise and affection on them whilst at the same time being unfaithful. I mean, you can do it, but it would mean that your praise and affection is disingenuous. We don't say I- I've given my life to Jesus and then live a life that is completely incongruous with the faith that we profess. If we're going to praise Christ, then we also need to live for Christ. We don't say, well, I'm going to be made perfect in the new creation, so it doesn't really matter how I live now. And yet I have heard many Christians say, our eternal home is in heaven, so we shouldn't get too het up about the state of the world. And whilst it's true that we don't need to be anxious and fearful, we are, after all, people of hope. We know where everything is headed. However, we should be deeply concerned about the state of our world, both the state of humanity and the state of creation, because God is deeply concerned. God is the God of creation. We see that so clearly in this psalm and creation. The physical world isn't going anywhere. God will always be the God of creation. If that were not so, then the creation project would have failed. It won't fail. And as Christians, we should be the most diligent stewards of creation, which is the mandate mandate that humankind is given at the very beginning of the Bible. Being a good steward of creation is not an easy thing to do in the middle, in the uh, modern world, because whether we like it or not, we are wrapped up in a system that exploits the world. Every time I put the bin out, I'm reminded that that rubbish is going to end up in landfill. It's hard to opt out of the system altogether. But we should care and we should be at the forefront of positive change. So if we're praising God, we need to be obedient to his laws and we need to be good stewards of creation. And that starts with our own thoughts, desires and actions. But it doesn't just depend on us or indeed on the whole of humanity. It depends on God, our creator and our redeemer. And that's what this psalm, Psalm 147, 
is all about. So finally, verses 19 to 20, I said I'd come back to them. Uh, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. God has revealed his word, his laws, his decrees to Israel, to his people, to us. The other nations don't know God. They're lost. But that begs the question, can they be found? Can they come to know God? And the answer is, yes, they can. But only if we praise God, our creator and our redeemer. Only if we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with our lives. The world is in a mess. Humanity's in a mess. Creation's in a mess. People are anxious and fearful and without any real sense of hope. But through Jesus, God will heal and restore the earth and he will heal and restore humanity. This is the message of hope that Christianity offers the world. Humanity is wayward, but God has redeemed and is redeeming his people. Anybody can join this group of redeemed people by putting their faith in Jesus. We should live in a way that affirms this truth. Creation has been and is being spoiled, but God is the God of creation. He will not let it go to waste. The way uh, we live in relation to creation should point forward to its renewal. Our lives should point forward to a time when human beings will live in right relationship with God, with each other and with creation itself. So let us sing praises to our creator and our redeemer.